0: Good morning. It's great to see all of you in worship. Welcome to Intown town Presbyterian Church. And if you're new here, we're especially glad that you're here. And I'd love to meet you after the service, if that's possible. Uh, if you're visiting or new, we've been going through a 10-week series on the Ten Commandments, interestingly enough. And we have come to the Ninth Commandment. This is Deuteronomy 5, 6-7, through 7, plus 20. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of a slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, your truth is absolute. It's unbending. It's unchanging. It's eternal. But Father, we thank you that it is also a truth that doesn't bear down upon us like a yoke or a weight, but it is a truth that liberates, a truth that sets us free. Jesus, we know that you are truth. You are the truth. Because you are full of grace and mercy and immeasurable love, let us not shy away from your truth. Let us not turn aside. Let us not be afraid of the truth about ourselves. Let us be able to give grace even to ourselves and also give grace to one another as we see the truth of the sinfulness that resides in each one of us. Father, let us hear of your mercy. Let us hear of your grace. Let us hear of your truth this morning and let it change the way that we speak. Let it change the way that we live. Let it change the way that we walk out of here this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. We have a a very complicated uh, relationship with the truth. On one hand, a great deal of life is predicated upon the truth. It's predicated upon us assuming that the person that we are in conversation with, the person that we're transacting business with, is basically honest. Anytime we write a check, anytime we buy a car, anytime we purchase a home, anytime we hear or say, I love you, There's an implicit expectation that human community is built on honesty, upon truth, and that we are giving truth when we speak. And even our legal system recognizes this, in that perjury and fraud and defamation of character are things that can be punishable by law, even by jail time. There's a recognition that each of us have in our daily lives that lying breaks the tissue that human community is built upon. But on the other hand, so much of our human interaction is based upon lying and deception. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, said, "...if we were all given by magic the power to read each other's thoughts, I suppose the first effect would be to dissolve all friendships." Liar, Liar is a 1997 movie starring Jim Carrey. It's one of my favorites of his movies. And it's based upon this question of what if for 24 hours you had to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And his son Max is granted a wish that for 24 hours his father has to tell the truth at all times no matter what the question is. It's impossible for him not to tell the truth. And so He's pulled over for speeding in his car, and the policeman says, do you know why I pulled you over? Jim Carrey says, well, it depends on how long you're following me. A girl in his office with a funny hairdo asks him if he likes her new dress, and he says, anything that takes the focus off your head. His secretary asks him why she didn't get the raise that she was expecting, that he had told her previously that it was because he couldn't afford it, And really, he has to tell her, well, it was because I was cheap. He has to tell his boss what he really thinks of him. How often do we hide what we're really thinking? Even from those that we're in friendships with, even from those we trust, how often do we tell people what we think they want to hear? Are these sort of polite lies, the things that God is talking about in this commandment? What about exaggerations? What about withholding truth that may be helpful to someone else? Well, let's explore this. Let's explore these questions by asking what it means to love the truth, to speak the truth, and to ponder the truth. First of all, how do we learn to love the truth? How do we learn to love truthfulness itself? Well, this command, in its ancient Israelite context, has to do specifically and narrowly with lying in court or at the gate where they held legal proceedings. Because a false legal suit, a false testimony, could deprive a person of land, of possessions, of reputation, or even of their very lives. An accused person in that context couldn't hire Matlock or Columbo to come and trick the truth out of the person that was on the stand, everything hung in the balance on whether the person who is on the witness stand could be trusted to be honest. So lying in this context is a very violent act because it's likely to bring harm upon another human being. And what God is saying is that my people, my courts, my land will be based upon honesty. We will protect the unprotectable. We will look out for those who are powerless We will give the accused a chance to defend themselves by being honest towards them. Be truthful so that you can protect the sanctity of other people's lives, of other people's property. So the commandment is based upon the command to uphold the law of love. So just as we saw in the eighth commandment last week that it opened up from the narrow prescription of stealing to the positive affirmation of generosity, so we'll see that the ninth moves from a narrow concern of speaking truthfully in court to actively giving grace to others through our words. Martin Luther says in his Catechism, "A person, excuse me, a person, should use his tongue to speak only good of everyone, to cover his neighbor's sins and infirmities." to overlook them and to cloak and veil them with his own honor. It is a particularly fine, noble virtue always to put the best construction upon all that we may hear about our neighbor. What do people see when they look inside the church, when they peek into our doors from the outside? Do they see that law at work, the law of love, the law that covers others indiscretions, that covers others' motives, that expects the best? Do they see an alternative community that's founded upon love? Or do they see one that sings praises to God, that worships him with our tongue and yet tolerates suspicion, tolerates prejudice, tolerates slander? Are we living out as a church? Are we living out at in-town? This law of love that commands us to speak not only what is true, but what is good and helpful to our neighbor. In the Bible, truth is not an abstraction, it's not a philosophical concept that hangs up here in the air that we try to talk about. Truth in the Bible is a person, it's an embodiment. Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the truth. I am full of grace and truth. And we see, once we look at that, we also look back to this commandment and see that it's also a perfect balance of grace and truth. You shall not give false testimony. There's a truth that is to be guarded. There is a truth that is real. But why? You shall not bear false testimony against your neighbor. Deliberate falsehoods are damaging Truth is in service to love, to grace, to mercy. It's in service to your neighbor. It is not just an abstract concept. Truth is a person. Truth is in service to love. And you can begin to love the truth insofar as you see the truth in Jesus Christ. Insofar as you see the truth as a person who loves you immeasurably, then you can fall in love with the truth. It's not a moral ideal to ascend up to, but a person who has come down to your level. It is God who has become incarnate. That truth that resides eternally with God has descended and become incarnate in a person who loves you and will embrace you. When you see that, when that's your idea of truth, then you can love it. Then you can fall deeply, passionately in love with the truth. God says, I lay down my life for you. Be liberated by the truth. That is absolute, unbending, unchangeable truth that's eternal. But it's truth that gives life. It's truth that gives freedom. It's truth that can be loved. And it's truth that can be shared. We have to love the truth, first of all. Secondly, we're called upon by this commandment to speak the truth. The ninth commandment is not simply saying reform your speech. God is offering up our words back to us as a a test, as a, a test of whether our religion is true, whether we really get the gospel. If you want to test your spirituality, wherever you're coming from this morning, whatever your worldview is, your religious practice, if you want to test your spirituality, if you want to test your maturity, inspect your words. When I preached on that James 3 passage a year or so ago, I offered to you that speech is like both a thermometer and a thermostat. Those two things are different. One measures the temperature and the other changes the temperature. One reveals a condition and the other changes the condition. Speech reveals something incredibly important about a person, a relationship, about a conversation. It reveals its foundation. Speech also has the power to change persons and relationships and conversations. Let's look at those two things just briefly as we talk about how do we learn to speak the truth. First, we have to see that it's a thermometer of our very souls, that it's a thermometer of our spirituality, of our maturity, of how much we grasp the gospel Whenever you find a command in Scripture, you should ask not simply what does it proscribe and prescribe, but also what does it tell me about my soul? The commands of Scripture act as a thermometer of a person's internal condition. And if you want to know what really has your heart, despite what you may say, despite what your profession may be, what really has your heart, inspect your words, inspect your pattern of speech. The ninth commandment is not simply saying, don't lie, though it certainly includes that. But it's asking, are you a person that's been liberated? Are you a person that's been set free? It reveals whether you think you are. How you speak tells you whether you really get God's liberation, whether you really get the freedom that Jesus brings. Are you a person who's been liberated? Are you a person who's been set free from having to control and manipulate situations with words? If you are desperate for someone's approval, you may exaggerate things about yourself. You may hide certain things about yourself that you think that if that other person knows or finds out about, that they'll reject you. And if you're desperate for that person's approval, for that person's love, then you'll do anything to keep the truth about yourself in this hermetically sealed little capsule. You'll exaggerate, you'll tell half-truths, you'll, undiscl- you'll disclose only the things that you want to disclose. You'll present a false you as your representative. You'll only tell them what you think that they most want to hear and what they, what they, instead of what they really need to hear. And the thing is you'll never know if they really love you for who you are. John Gotti, the the mobster, as I quoted in the bulletin, says, I never lie because I don't fear anyone. You only lie when you're afraid. When you fear someone's disapproval more than you want to love and serve them, you'll use and manipulate them to get the love that you want. And words are a powerful thing to do that with. God says, speak The truth, and you can only do that if you embody the truth. If the truth of God's grace and mercy and his inexhaustible love is what's at the center of your person, then you can speak the truth. How you speak, how truthful you are, how good you are to other people through your words is a reflection of what really rules your heart. It's a reflection of what your true savior, your functional God is. It's a thermometer of what's going on in your soul, but it's also a thermostat. Did you hear the passage in the New Testament? The tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person and sets the whole course of their lives on fire, and it itself is set on fire by hell. It's a thermostat as well. It's a raging fire that can explode into your relationships into your marriage, into your dorm room, into all of the contexts that you live. And the thing is, is that words not only destroy other people, we'll talk about that in a moment, but words can destroy you as well. Words not only destroy and diminish other people, but the speaker who uses untruthful words is damaging themselves. Lies create this internal contradiction that pushes out integrity, that pushes out and eliminates Wholeness in your life, lies poison your soul just like bad food poisons your body because you have to construct this continuing web of deception and you never know if someone's going to open the door on you and find out who you really are. You have to keep your lives from being found out and it's exhausting and it's all-consuming and it leads you to worry and anxiety and fear and it will destroy you from the inside out. It's a thermostat. Lies change you from the inside out. They change the condition of your soul. And when you give vent to lies, it will eat you alive. Not only destroys you, but it destroys others. Your speech and your lying can change the temperature in your own heart, but it can also change the temperature of your relationships. False testimony, as we said and as we saw in the ancient world, just as it can in the modern world. False testimony can lead someone to death. It can lead them to lose something dear to them. And lying gives you power over another person. Deliberate falsehood is is an attempt to gain control over a situation or a person. The gospel, Jesus' message, is a call to give up all attempts at at control. Give up all attempts at gaining power over others, giving all up all attempts to leverage the situation in your favor and instead to serve others just as Jesus has served you. David Gill, who has written a commentary on the Ten Commandments, he's an ethicist mostly in the business world, but he's written on the Ten Commandments, and I've used him a good bit in this series. And he says, and this is powerful. The only justifiable reason for passing on information of a personal nature about others is that doing so promises to help those people. If sharing information about others leads to more prayer and more care, then it's probably legitimate. We must be sure what we pass on is true, and that means we must interact with the person concerned. However, even If something is true, it may not be legitimate to share with others. It's even worse to speculate on people's actions, tastes, relationships, and attitudes. It's bad enough to think about such things in a negative way, but it's an abomination to God to pass on such speculations to others, for gossip destroys lives the gospel changes our interest in the truth from something that we must simply guard into a shield that we deploy to protect other people. It's not enough to simply avoid bearing false witness. The Christian understanding of this commandment means that we will seek to liberate others through the truth, that we will seek to guard other people's honor, that we will seek to free them with our words, not enslave them, with our, with our falsehoods. We need, first of all, to learn to love the truth, and then we need to see how to speak the truth, and then thirdly, ponder the truth. Remember the context of this command that Steve and I have been going back to each and every time because the commands don't hang in the middle of nowhere. They hang in a context, and the context is what? God is saying, look back to what I have done. Look back to my rescue of you. Look back to my faithfulness, my liberating spirit. Now follow my commands. I have rescued you from Egypt. I am a loving and caring God who knows you and holds your best interests very close at heart. So why lie? If you understand my character, if you understand my love for you, why do you need to lie? Why spread falsehoods? Why try to control and manipulate situations and people by speech when you know I'm in control and I'm good? We lie because we feel estranged from God and we're not certain of his willingness to uphold Him, uphold us. We're not certain that his PR for us will be enough. And we're afraid of each other. Lying in this sense, lying if we feel estranged from God, if we're uncertain about his goodness and his character, lying is just survival. Being truthful, and we should admit this, in that type of world, in that type of context, is downright dangerous because people can and will exploit the truth that they have about us. Telling the truth, embodying the truth, can seem absolutely suicidal at times. So lying, posturing, exaggeration, deflection, on the other hand, can seem quite useful and even necessary. If you're on your own in this world, you mustn't let your guard down. The world is full of enemies and competitors, and you're silly and foolish to let them know the real you. If God doesn't exist, then It's probably more effective in life to lie, to deceive other people, to get ahead, to step on people. But what if? What if the power at the center of the universe, at the center of all things, is a benevolent and gracious king who knows your name and loves you deeply? What if that is what's ruling your heart? Reinhard Hutter, who is a professor at Duke, says... I indeed live under the power of the lie insofar as long as I am cut off from the truth to which I owe my existence and which alone can liberate me to live a life free from mendacity and free for truthfulness. This way, the eighth commandment turns us back to the first commandment. Only if my heart comes to rest in God can I afford the truth about myself it turns us back to our very first commandment. Do you worship and serve God, Yahweh, alone? Is he your life? Do you trust him? Do you see the way that he liberated the Israelites as a type, as as an analog for what is coming in the gospel, what Jesus will do to liberate you freely? Do you see that he is a liberating, life-giving, loving God? Insofar as you understand that, and follow the first commandment, then you're empowered to live by and follow the eighth commandment, not out of duty, but out of gratitude, out of joy, out of a longing to serve other people. What does it look like to face this truth, the truth about ourselves? Let's ponder this just a moment as we conclude. Three things. First of all, God will contradict you. God will contradict you. The sad thing about the way that we organize our lives oftentimes, and I think it's becoming even more true, is that we live in isolated ways. We surf and we scan until we find the person, the channel, the program that agrees with us, and then we dial in and we stay. We choose the truth like we're picking a team to play on. But real truth makes you confront the lies about yourself. It makes you confront the fact that you don't know everything. It makes you confront the fact of all of your prejudices and all of the ways that you try to hide your heart from really opening up to the truth. If God is the truth, if Scripture is the truth, then we can never arrive at a place where everything is incontrovertible, where we no longer change. We should constantly be holding up our opinions against God's word. We should be constantly holding up our opinions for God's review. First of all, if God is the truth, he will contradict you and he'll contradict me. Secondly, God will put you in community. It's not easy to learn to be real, to be really honest in front of other people. We have to practice this. We have to experience telling the truth about ourselves and not being rejected before we begin to believe that it's safe to do so. Before we can really get comfortable with being who we really are and taking our mask off and letting our guard down, before we can do that consistently, we have to try it out. We have to test it. And will we be a community that will allow that to happen? that will allow idiosyncrasies to come to the forefront, that will allow weird things, that will allow sinfulness to bubble up and yet not reject one another because of it. Our community groups are a great place to get started in that. And that's what they're designed to do, not simply to deliver information about the Bible, not simply to be a part of the programmatical ministry of InTown, but they're also designed to be communities where you can test this out where you can be real and have other people hold on to you, have other people say, I love you in spite of that? What if any time someone was speaking of someone else in any negative light, we asked them to either stop it or at least we held off getting angry about it until we could go and inspect what it, whether it was true? What if we, if when we heard something that someone had done or said, we tried our hardest as Luther Martin Luther encouraged us to put the best spin on that person's motives. What if instead of just getting mad, we took the time to investigate someone's comments and say things like, I heard that you said this, and when tempted to think this, but would you explain yourself? Would you tell me what was going on? What if we took the time to ferret out all of those comments and negative things that we hear in our daily daily lives? It takes time, and it's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Tedious, but it's what the truth demands of us. What if in town became a community that wasn't just committed to not lying, but to truth telling and truth seeking? Would it not be an attractive, countercultural community that someone who came in from the outside, maybe was suspicious about church, that came in and said, There's something different here? Suspicion, prejudice, All of those things are not allowed to exist, and when they do crop up, they're pointed out. I can live here. I can be safe here. What would that look like? One of the things that I love about being married to my wife, Katie, is that she's always willing to hypothesize the best about my motives and my intentions and she has seen the absolute worst of me. And it, sometimes I think she has this supernatural ability to frame those things because they almost become endearing to her. <laughs> she sees my junk, and instead of it pushing her away, it draws her towards me because she understands that I'm a broken person. She knows the truth about me before, it gives, before it's evidenced in daily life. <laughs> before I make a big mistake, she kind of expects, well, you're going to blow it because you're a sinner. And so then, why the surprise? Why the need to get angry immediately? Because she knows the truth about me. And she's able to hypothesize the best about my actions and and even the actions of others. And I hear her almost daily say, so-and-so said this, but maybe what was going on was. And she can always come up with a hypothesis that puts the other person's motives in the best light. God will put you in a community. A marriage can be a community where you can learn to be loved, to give love, to be truthful, to not lie, to be honest about who you are. And then in not being rejected, you can learn to live that way more fully. God will contradict you. God will put you in community. And God will change you. If, you, if anyone ever had more false testimony against him It's Jesus, not only at his trial, but his whole life. People assumed they understood him. People spoke for him that weren't authorized to do so. People rejected him based upon hearsay and misinformation. And even after his death, Jesus continues to be molded into different things based upon the, the agenda of certain groups and certain people. He is very misunderstood. He's lied about. Many half-truths and untruths are told about Jesus. And the Christian believes that in his or her bones that Jesus is the perfect embodiment of truth, that he goes around covering and defending his neighbor's sins and infirmities, that he cloaks our untruth and dishonesty. He is the one who is falsely accused before we ever are. And he says, give those things to me. Let me carry those for you. Each time you or I bend the truth, shade the truth, break the truth, Jesus is not the accuser but the scapegoat. He's the one who takes the blame. He's the one that says, I know everything about you. I know the truth. I see right into the center of your soul, and I don't reject you. In fact, I give my life for you. My lies, your lies lead Jesus to the cross, but his cross will make an honest person out of you and me. This is truth that you can love. This is truth that is not used as a weapon against others, but as a shield to protect them. Just as Jesus is the truth that will protect you, please let him. Let him be your truth. Let him be the grace that protects you. And leads you out of here this morning. Let's pray, Father. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for His being the eternal truth that guides our faith, that gives rationale to our whole lives. We pray that we would center our lives, our purpose, our meaning, our identity on His gospel, on His grace and truth. And we pray in His name, Amen. Now we're going to confess.